On this episode of Year One, we speak to Jim Boccarosa, founder and CEO of Provenair, a service platform that dynamically generates back-to-birth trace insights for commercial landing gear and other life-limited material. We speak about the importance of hard work, what should new business owners focus on, relationships, mentors, the free lunch metric. Given his years of experience and knowledge, Jim has so much to offer. Sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Kloppers, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So, without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. Jim, welcome to Year One. Satish and I are really thrilled that you've decided to join us today. I'm going to go right in for the jugular with the first question, and that is, we want to understand a little bit more about the man behind the business. We want to understand what's your story, what's happened in your life that has actually made you the person that you are today. Well, first, thanks for having me. You know, I was telling Satish earlier that this is one of my, I need to give back more. And maybe if any of my crazy rants will help other entrepreneurs, then I check that box, right? This year. So little about me, I would say you have to go back where you grew up. I think everyone would say, how did you become this person? Right. Well, I grew up in a very rural part of Illinois, western part of Illinois, near Iowa, on a tree farm, a Christmas tree farm. So my family had a choose and cut Christmas tree farm that I started working on when I was five years old. And so there's many pictures of me holding up a little seedling for my dad to plant in the ground while my grandfather drove the tractor and we seeded the whole field. And we've had that farm since uh, we started farming it in 1978 oh. and our, our first crop was in 1985. So you can imagine the 40 years almost of having that family farm is really, I think, what made me who I am today. Now, as a 12-year-old working on that farm in the spring planting, in the summer trimming all those trees, in the fall getting the field ready, and being out there in the cold helping customers, I hated it. I tell you, I couldn't believe it. I said, why do I have to do this? And, you know, but now looking back on it, I'm so thankful. That's how I got my start in learning how to run a business and the importance of hard work. And no one's going to do it for you if you're an entrepreneur. So, so if I had to start anywhere, you want to know that's me, the Christmas tree kid from Western Illinois. That's how I got started. So how did I get from that to running a tech company in the aviation industry? Seems a big leap. You know, I went to school in Champaign, got an engineering degree, started my career in management consulting, building custom developed software application, putting in ERPs, that kind of stuff. Worked at a couple of software companies and really decided to get my MBA. So went back to school, got me with the full intent of being an entrepreneur and starting my own company. And our very first one, the CEO and I met, we're still in grad school. 
and it was really fun, really exciting. Uh, we were five guys in an office up in Evanston, and through the ups and downs, somehow six years later, we had over 100 employees. A strategic bought the company, and then that got bought by a private equity. So that was really kind of my first introduction to the entrepreneurship journey, aside from the family farm. And you're just hooked. And that was almost 18 years ago. So um, done a few in between. I was an investor in a couple, helped a couple of startups get early stage revenue growth and raise some venture capital. And how I got here? Well, it's really my wife's fault. My wife comes from the aviation industry. She's had over two decades worth of experience in the aftermarket sector, supplying parts to many of the large airlines, uh, lessors and aircraft owners. And I was really intrigued with, she started a company called Air Spares Unlimited all by herself out of her one bedroom apartment at the time. We hadn't actually gotten married yet. And I was having lunch with one of my mentors. He says, what are you going to do now? I said, well, Stephanie's got this airplane parts company. There's a ton of margin there. They don't have any technology. I, it's very opaque, disaggregated. I have some ideas. And my mentor said, do it. And I said, I came home, said, Steph, you're really good at sales. I'm an experienced entrepreneur. I got some ideas. We should partner up. So that's how I got into the aviation industry. Of course, if she sees this interview, her story is different. So her, her side of the story is that she spent a decade in sales, but never ran a business and she needed to hire somebody. She wanted a, some experienced CEO, like a Kellogg MBA guy, but couldn't afford one. So married one and made him work there. So that, I don't know. <laughs> whose idea it was, but that's my journey. And we, Air Spares Unlimited, you know, we work together. It's a very successful business, profitable, growing 40% year over year. And they focus on commercial landing gear. And there are not a lot of companies in that space that have that niche focus. Well, one of the things that we discovered, which led to Provenir, is that anytime we bought or sold landing gear, one of the biggest problems was the amount of paperwork that went along with that transaction. So either on the acquisition side or the sales side, we had full-time employees. All they did was look wow. through hundreds of not thousands of pages of paper, okay, to prove the provenance of this material. And in our industry, we call it back to birth trace, okay? Where you had to have all of your times, all of your cycles, all of the serial numbers must match, all of the repair and maintenance documentation had to be there. And there was no system in the entire industry. I don't care if you're a two-man company out of Miami or Boeing, they don't have a system to track it. So everyone was doing it manually, okay? Which... Anytime we do anything manually, you introduce human error, right? You introduce inconsistencies on reliability, all the things that a human bring to the table. And I saw this, I said, we've got to fix this. Given my background was in technology, 
Now I'm in the aviation industry. I'd learned the parts space. I said, we are going to fix it. And so that was really the genesis behind where we got to Provenir and came I up with the concept a few years ago, built some prototypes and started talking to customers. There you go. So that was a little mixture of kid from the Christmas tree farm all the way to his wife getting him into aviation to now we've got a uh, software company <laughs> that's helped digitize these records. So there you go. I love the Christmas starting. Uh, Christmas <laughs> is one of my favorite holidays. And anytime I meet an entrepreneur with an origin that goes way back to family, I'm curious always with that little boy, how were you interpreting what your parents are doing for a living? And I, the backstory is my parents come from entrepreneurial families, but they reacted very differently. So my dad, his father had a corn farm in India and they would starve for half the year because there was no corn. It was cold. And so his interpretation of entrepreneurship is the most selfish thing you can do to your family. On the other side, my mom's family are also entrepreneurs and they sold rice. And for them, entrepreneurship was the greatest way to live. And then I'm born and I want to be an entrepreneur. And one person is saying, yeah, secretly. The other person is like, go to school, get a job. So but I never grew up watching any of this stuff. So I'm curious when you're five, six, 10, 12, how are you interpreting their lifestyle? And what lessons so, are you taking away? Yeah, it was a couple of things. So my dad had a full-time job with the federal government in the, in the small business administration. So his job was also to help other small businesses bid on government contracts. Okay. That was his full-time position. The Christmas tree farm was really, and if you think about how did I experience it, what was the purpose of the farm? Okay, so you, I think everything in life, you get to say, well, what's really the purpose to do this? One was my father wanted to have us out in the country where we could have some land, enjoy some clean air, and all the things that come with living out in the country. So he had to figure out, A, how do I pay for it, right? How do we pay for this land, okay, and keep a job? So a Christmas tree farm, you can work weekends, nights. It's not like animals where you have to feed them every day. Okay. So, so that was one. But then two, and I always knew this when I was younger, right? When I say, oh, why do I have to be out here working and not be right? My dad would say, well, this is going to pay for your college. And so in my head, it was, okay, my father's doing this work for us, right? for the kids so that my sister and I can pay for our school, right? And I think that had a big effect on me. So my experience from the, it, maybe not at five, right? But at 12 and 15 and 16 years old, when, and this is a big topic, right? How do we pay for college now? That's how we did it through all that. And we had a purpose in mind for it. So I looked at it as, a means to an end almost of we're doing this work so that I can go to college. We can use the money we made on the Christmas tree farm and I can graduate debt free. And that's one of the only reasons that I have the opportunity I have now to run a startup 30 years later is because I don't, didn't have that coming out of school. I had everything taken care of, but it took decades in the making to do that. So it's really about the purpose is really kind of the eye opener for me. 
I love that. Jim, was there an expectation from your dad or your family that you would actually take over? I'm sorry, what was the question? You cut out a little bit there. I said, was there ever an expectation from your parents that you would actually take over the farm? I think my dad made a few comments about it. It's not a, it's not a huge business. Okay. It's a small family farm, really, because the purpose was to pay for college. Okay. I think he sort of maybe had a little bit of Jim will come back and take the farm. But I think he knew that I moved to Chicago. I was doing all this stuff in technology. So, but what's great about that farm now is that my kids, they live here in the city and they love going out there. And what we have done now with the farm is we're planting hardwoods. So we have rows and rows of one curry, maple, all kinds of like I said, hardwood trees for my kids or the grandkids now that these trees won't be ready for harvest for another 30 years. And so we are going to take over the farm, my wife and I, at some point in the next 30 years, because we have a different crop now on that same land, on the same family farm. And so while I never took over the Christmas tree farm, we will be taking over the hardwood tree farm as we pivot as we call it in the startup world, from trees. Man, that's incredible, man. No, Dion's having a little bit of a tech issue, and I don't know if you're experiencing anything. A beautiful Monday when everybody's online at the same time, right? <laughs> um, right. You, you said something that I want a little bit more conversation around. Hard work and the idea that no one's coming to help you. And I get the sense of hard work from just being around the family and doing what you got to do. And But this idea of no one's coming to help you, talk to me a little bit about that, because you know, I got a chance to understand that very early in life because of the way I grew up in India and Singapore and then sort of life doing what is thing. And I was like, nobody's coming to help me, man. I got to figure this shit out and I got to do it on my own. What points in your moment in your life, in your career where that was a lesson? I would say there's a bunch of them, right? When we start back at the tree farm, it's okay. We have to, I remember there was a year in the late eighties where we had almost a drought. Okay, so here we planted acres and acres of small seedling trees. Okay, well, we better get them watered or else, right? Years down the line, right? There's no one to call. There's no magic. How do I get someone out here with an irrigation tractor or something? That didn't happen. So what we had to do was take the four-wheeler, with the cart on the back and fill up milk jugs, empty milk jugs of water and drive them out to the field and pour a half gallon of water on every single little tree to keep them alive. Okay. Wow. And so that was probably my first, if you don't do this, no one's coming to, you're it, right. You have to do it. I would say that was my first time. The other, I think, it didn't happen to me, but it happened at my company where I had a friend was looking for a job. Brilliant person. They said, oh, yeah, we can get you an interview. Had an interview with the with our COO at the time and um, interview went great. It gave him a kind of a, 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 I won't call it a test, but an assignment. Okay, here, analyze this. And he and I were talking. He says, well, nobody taught me how to do this at school. And I said, well, 
you have to figure this stuff out on your own because no one's going to tell you exactly what to do. You're going to take classes in college, right? You're going to learn the basics, but that's not the real world. The real world is, okay, you, you know how to do math and spell. And you, okay, now do this. Well, there was no class on that. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So I think those two stand out to me most in my mind of, hey, no one's going to do it for you or no one's coming to help you do this. Right? You just got to figure it out. Yeah. No, and before we get into the next segment, the reason this is an interesting conversation, especially when we look at first-time founders, I was an entrepreneur when it was still considered unemployment. 25 years ago. And today it's sexy. There's accelerators, incubators, mentors, coaches, gurus, channels and channels at TikTok. And we seem to have outsourced the pain, right? <laughs> I'm stuck. Oh my gosh. I could take a course for a hundred bucks and I can watch this TikTok video and I can sign up for this incubator, accelerator. Go. And the pain and this idea that nobody's coming for me is how you build new skills and new. So talk to us a little bit about some of the early entrepreneur challenges. So I would say, I'll talk about my first startup. We didn't have a lot of capital. We had a couple of angel investors to get us started, but that was it. Okay. And so we couldn't draw salaries out of the company. And I think most entrepreneurs, unless they're really ready to go from a six figure job to making less than the night shift manager at McDonald's, you're not like you have to understand. So my, I went from here's a guy with an engineering degree, right? Great career up to this point, MBA from Kellogg, all these things. I'm making 30 grand a year. Okay. Right. I had a house. I had, you can't pay a mortgage on that. You can't live in Chicago on that. Okay. So I had to rent out rooms in my house. Okay. Part-time gigs over the weekends. One thing, I, one of my hobbies was a DJ at the time. So it was also fun, right? And got paid, right? So, but that's what I had to do because I believed in the business so much. We had to get it off the ground. So we did that for two years doing that. Okay. So the pain was, okay, you can't pay your mortgage now. How? You got to figure out a way to get over it, right? And so, but we just, you just have to do it. And, yeah. and if you take the right mindset and don't look at it as pain, but logic, well, if you want to run a business and you want all these, but yeah, to do this, you have to do this, right? Yeah. So all these things you're seeing now with incubators and all this kind of stuff, well, yeah. Oh, here's a, an investment immediately for the founders. And these guys, well, you didn't go through that pain. And I think part of not going through that pain is what leads to a lot of these companies just making it. They just don't know how to get through that pain. Right. Uh, that's just one of my theories of, wow, we're not millionaires in 18 months. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know. But that's not how it works. Right. You got to do all this pain. Yep. You got to go two years of making 30 grand a year. Oh, but Jim, yeah. I, I have a six-figure job. Well, that's fine. Then you're not an entrepreneur. Then you can't do this. Like, that's just how it is. hundred percent. I love it. Thanks, Jim. So love that you guys are building this. Like, what made you decide to do this kind of format? Like, what was the... 
Listen, it's a combination. I've been a serial entrepreneur for most of my life and I've seen the scarcity in help and the abundance in help. And we went from do it all yourself and nobody gives a shit. And why aren't you full-time employed? This doesn't make sense to almost coddling. And I was like, I spent a year at the university building an incubator and the amount of stuff these young people had access to, you were just not building the right support network around you. So we said, man, we got to go out and talk to some real folks with some real pain because that's where narrative is. That's where the struggle is. And when I look back on my, I don't know, four exits over the last 20 years, I don't remember the business as much as the growth I went through. And one of the things you shared, two things that I think aligns with what I did is one, I'm also a DJ and I've been DJing for a very long time. And oh, I, still I knew get we'd the be friends. Gigs. I still get I the odd gigs every now and then. I'm like, yes, let's pull out the turntables. But my career also started in ERP. I graduated and this was Y2K and everybody was freaking out about technology. And I got into JD Edwards by accident and built a really cool company building a JD Edwards consulting team. And then we moved into SAP and Domino and all this stuff. And I, and then when I sort of look at my trajectory, so much of what I do today, 10 years, 20 years later, is those things I learned in those businesses, right? Selling, advertising and marketing. And I know you got a really beautiful history of selling and marketing and building businesses. One of the questions that always comes up in all of the meetings we have is I'm a technical person. I'm not a sales guy. I'm not an engineer. I, I'm an engineer and I don't know how to do marketing. And so with your engineering background, you're supposed to be introverted. You're supposed to be not that good at sales and marketing. You're supposed to have a... So how are you breaking those labels? And what are some of the ways you started to embrace some of the other skills you need for entrepreneurship? So while I'm an engineer by education and my first careers, right, building front end, I was building front ends to Oracle databases and then yeah, implementing SAP. Right. And then went and worked at a couple of XML database companies. I had to learn schema and all these things. Now, this was in 2001, right? XML was brand new to everyone. But how do you go from that? I think for me, I just had a lot of high energy, I think. And it just seemed logical to me of, well, then when we talk about sales and or marketing here, right? have kind of a balanced perspective. Why does that person want to buy my product or service? Why? Right. And I think too many engineers lead with, oh, this thing is the fastest. Da, 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 da. Right. Okay. If what does it mean to them? Right. It's fast because it'll help you do X or it'll provide you what, whatever that is. Right. That I think is where once you get that in your head of, yeah, what, why would this person buy it? That's sales. Understand what they're looking for and then just listen. Now, where did that uh, talk come from though, Jamie? Like, is that organic? Is that something you learned along the way? Because folks don't think like that. I'm good in yeah. engineering. I'm going to make stuff. They, yeah, that's right. Well, I would say the term balanced perspective, I will have to give credit to one of my professors, Harry Kramer, that I had in school where he had four 
principles of value-based leadership that I still think of. I graduated in 2006, so almost 17 years ago, and I still think of those things. So that term balanced perspective was kind of really solidified for me in that class. And just, I would say then before that, it was more organic of showing me this really cool thing right, to buy. But I had to convince, I, I always just felt like, hey, you want to buy this because you used it, you could do this kind of idea going back to when I was a kid. But like that's, it wasn't a term balanced perspective until right. he had as part of his class of in the other person's shoes. And that's when it really started. Now, putting yourself in the other person's shoe, a lot of our listeners can do from just the learning and technology and sort of other people do it, but the courage to step into their shoes, the courage to make that first phone call, the courage to sort of go out there and pitch and present. I want a horror story when you like fucked it up and you're like, oh man, I could have done a lot better. And then how did you rebound from it? Because we hear a lot of great, like, here's what I did in my first step. I'm like, when is that, that? Because I remember those moments more vividly, those three or five, than the other hundreds that I've crushed. Sure. And I think uh, I'll go back to high school then for that first one, whereas I, in our English AP class, I signed up for something called the Sons of the American Revolution Speech Writing Contest. Okay. This is late 80s, right? So where you had to write a speech about almost like patriotism, okay, to pitch these are Sons, the American Revolution, right? And being from Illinois, I had to include Abraham Lincoln in there. And I misattributed a quote that was not his. It's so, what's talking about this? Thank goodness my English teacher who reviewed these first says, Jim, are you sure on that? I said, uh oh, wait. And so that was probably the first one that here I had a Oh, you're from Illinois and you're, yeah, great. So, so I would say that was the first one. The second one that probably sticks most in my mind is one of the first times we were raising money and uh, I just completely missed a meeting with an investor. You know, how hard it is, you know how hard it is just to get a meeting in the first place. Okay. That's, yet alone just. Oh crap, get an email, oh, one of these. And that, I mean, my heart about shoo, suck. Right? I just, oh just, man. Oh, just missed it. Just totally missed it. So one of the things that everybody asks about is productivity hacks. Well, now I have calendar app. It auto schedules it. It's in there. I have two different warnings of you got 10 minutes, you got two minutes. Like, I've done all these things so this doesn't happen again. So that's, that's awesome. Jim, while you were introducing yourself, there were two things that you touched on, which I'd like to circle back to if you don't mind. Yeah. So I'm aware of, or I have friends even, that their wife and them have started a business together and the whole world is consumed at the business 24-7. That's all they talk about. And when the business is doing well, the relationship goes well. When the business goes through a bit of a slump, the relationship takes a knock. And you mentioned that you and your wife, you started a business together and things like that. How have you managed to protect your relationship during those low moments? So as you can imagine, we were in aviation through the pandemic. Okay. 
and there's no business case study yeah. or any strategy class that you're ever going to take that says, hey, when you're writing your business plan, please include a page for global pandemic where the entire industry you're in just gets shut down. Okay. That, that, that didn't exist. Okay. So you can imagine the amount of stress that we were under. Okay, here we have a, a multi-million dollar landing gear parts business. I'm self-funding a new software startup and we're ready to launch. We're going to launch this thing March 1st of 2020. Awesome. Two weeks later, the entire industry is right. I mean, okay, so I'm going to set that stage to say, wow, that's stressful. You and your wife are in this. You got everything you got in these things. Yes. So it was very stressful. Um, we luckily, and, and I don't want this to be about some sort of faith-based, but we had been going to church more often years leading up to that. And regardless of whatever religion you are, it gives you a sense of something. And so someone in our parish says, hey, why don't you guys join this marriage class? Even if you're so we did. We took this on. We went, oh, sure. I said, hey, why don't we do this? We talk about work all the time, right? And our rule of, and we had this at dinner one night. Let's not talk about work for the first 20 minutes of dinner. We literally had stared at each other and twiddled our thumbs. And we were just so, you know, so didn't know what to talk about. So we did that. And one of the great things that came out of it was we instituted a weekly date. Just the two of us. Okay, no work, no kids, right? We have three little boys, by the way. So they're the cutest things ever, but they're four years old, three years old, and one year old. So you can imagine they take a lot of attention also. So to keep our relationship, we started doing this once a week and we made a point of always doing it. And it's not extravagant. Sometimes it was, let's take the morning, nanny's here. Let's just walk around the neighborhood and get a coffee. Just the two of us walk around the yeah. park, maybe stop and get breakfast, right? It could be as simple as that to planning. Uh, let's get a babysitter. Let's go out Saturday night, have a wonderful dinner together. But we always, have, and we've been doing this for probably three years now, at least a weekly date. So it really helps to have why did we start dating in the first place before all this business stuff started yeah. happening before the kids took over to keep our relationship solid? And it's that's the one I would say if I had to point to something, how we did it, weekly date. I absolutely love that. And then the second one was you referenced mentors. So once again, how important as mentorship theme in your own journey? And do you still use mentors today? A couple of the folks that I mentioned, I call them mentors. They probably wouldn't even consider themselves that, right? But these were folks that they always had a perspective on things and it just really helped to call. And it's been 15 years, at least 16 years since I've known these guys where I can call them about anything. And I remember one time we're in my office and my mentor's sitting there and we were just, ah, man, there was just something going on. He says, this is safe space, right? Using that term, but to talk about things that were really just 
ah, what do I do here? And so it, I think it was just very valuable to me of, to get that perspective, right? We said, I use the term balanced perspective. Right? Yeah. So I'm in the business, I'm working on this, or this is what's going on in my life. Hey, Todd, what, what do you, you know what? You're fine, Jim. Here's what. You're right. Okay. Right. Or here's what you could do. I know this guy. Let me make a call for you. Like, it just was really something that helped me over the years. And so I was mentioned earlier, or maybe I was giving you my New Year's resolutions for 23 is maybe I give back. I'm doing a couple of things this year. One is I volunteered with the Stanford Entrepreneur Program to be a mentor to their startups. So here are students getting their MBA and I'm a mentor to one of the startup companies there. And then there's another service that, you know, where that one's volunteer. This one, you get paid, you set your hourly rate. And they said, hey, we'd really love to have somebody in aviation, your background. I said, you know what? And you're not going to, this isn't a get rich thing, right? But, and I, that's mm -hmm. kind of what I have done because I did have such a great experience and it was valuable to me. And now I'm, I hate to say it, I guess I'm in that position that I should be doing that for folks, right? Because I'm not that old. So let's not. Yeah, it's, it's, no, no, age and experience are not connected. That's my excuse. That's right. It's good. Right. There you go. Um, before we get into the last couple of segments, I'm curious with your mentorship and you look at other people working on their first business, what would be your top three to five things that somebody who's new to business should be paying attention to? A lot of the times the focus is really on cash flow. You know, we've all seen the cash is king, but in today's economy, cash is good, but there's also other things to show you that you're in the right way. You should sort of keep going. You had your checklist of three to five things that any new founder should be paying attention to on a monthly level, quarterly level. What are the things that you would suggest? Well, I would first say, and I, we, I had this conversation last week with the company that I'm helping. I said, wait a minute, how are you surviving? Right? Because remember I was telling the story of I had to rent rooms in my house and I love being a DJ, but I don't want to always do it. Right. But I had to do those sort of things to pay. And, and it struck me odd that here's a extremely intelligent person. They're getting their MBA at Stanford. They hadn't actually thought about that. And they said, well, how are you going to pay the rent? Oh, well, and I'm like, I get the business. And we talked a lot about the business and your business model and your growth strategy, but that was the number one thing. Right. And I thought, well, wait a minute, like take a step back and look at the holistic view of you got to have a plan so that then you can focus on the business. Okay. And so then you really have to decide, you go raise venture capital. Can you bootstrap this thing based on your own situation? Right. So that would be the number one thing I would say to talk to any entrepreneur out there, have that figured out, right? Because you're not going to just open your doors for business and have a ton of cash flow and be profitable and all, maybe you can, and maybe you can limit them. That's great. Then that solves all those answers. So that's one. But if you're going to look for specific things with inside of a business, I think most entrepreneurs, they come up with a product or service idea because it happened to them. They had a personal experience with, I didn't like this, so I built this type of thing. Well, 
how do you know that the market has the same experience, right? And you can read all the research you want on Gartner and Reuters, anything, right? Wherever you're getting your data, okay? But it's getting that first customer to say yes and pay you some money, okay, for that. That's like, and then see work on your pricing model and all those kind of tweaks so that your metric then is, okay, I got one. Can I go from one to 10 or whatever your, if it's a small business app or if it's an enterprise, whatever that is, one to five or one to a hundred, whatever that is, right? Can you do it and how do you do it? So how do you survive? How are you going to live? Okay. So can you get from zero to one, right? Can I get from one to that next inflection point, right? So those metrics are what I would be looking for in a business, right? Of course, cash and all the things you're going to learn in school, cash flow and revenue and costs and burn rates and customer acquisition costs and long-term value, all those things, right? I think those are talked about all the time. So my metric that I tell people to know the success of your business is called the free lunch metric. Okay. So there's an economist, right, at the University of Chicago, not to make fun of Milton Friedman, right? He said, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Right. <laughs> Just true, right? I mean, of course. Right. So I tell people, I go, do you want to know if your business is successful? Well, I have cash flow, Jim. And I'm like, oh, I get it. I get it. You can measure it by net profit and all that. Great. But we're talking about early stage. Most of the time, these early stage aren't wildly profitable. And you're not, well, okay. It's this. And I'll go back to my very first company that we're working on. I had to pay for lunch to get meetings with these folks all the time. Hey, I want to talk to you about this. Okay. Look, can we meet for lunch? Right. Okay. And I'm paying. The bill comes and, okay, it's mine. It's when the other person starts picking up that tab. That's when you know you have a business. Okay. That's how you know you're making it. Right. Because now you have a product or a service that's really helping them, going to provide them value. Say, I got lunch today. Hey, look, can you meet me for dinner? I want you to meet our VP of, and we're going to pay for dinner. Well, okay. And all of a sudden you start seeing that. And so you're not going to learn that in business school, but I think that's the point of this podcast of what can you say? Look for the free lunch metric. How many are you getting and how versus how many you're paying for? And look at the trend. So there you go. I like that. I like that. Trade market. I don't know. I like that. So, so I guess, Dion, to reinterpret that in our world, when people start reaching out to us to get on the podcast, then we've made it. Then we've made it. And then I'll be like, remember when Jim said, who pays for lunch? It's not (laughs) us anymore, Dion. (laughs) That's right. That's the same. That's the concept. That's right. That's right. I love that. I did love that. I did love that. Jim, one of the questions that we ask in closing, I think you might actually have just answered to that. And the, one of the questions that we ask in closing is, what has entrepreneurship taught you that you feel everyone should learn at some point in their life? I would say independence, I guess, if I had to boil it down to one, you know, that it taught me 
that or maybe self-reliance. Okay, that kind of a theme we've talked about a few times today in the chat. Nobody's coming to help you. No one's going to teach you how to do this, right? You just have to do it, right? So I would think that's really been um, something that I've enjoyed that I don't have to like rely on somebody. I don't have to rely on, and you hear this in the news a lot now of layoffs in tech, right? That's big news right now. And it's devastating. And I was laid off twice and I vowed never again. And the second time my boss said, Jim, you're one of our best people. And I said, well, if that's the case, well, we're just closing the Chicago. I'm like, okay. Right. Completely out of my control. So I know what these people are going through. And so for me, entrepreneurship really taught me self-reliance and independence. Okay. So that I don't have to go through that. Right. I'm not saying you might have customers might not buy a product. That's a, I'll handle that. Right. I can deal with that, but it's on me and I'm completely accountable for that. And that I would say that self-reliance, that independence, that ultimate accountability is what's taught me. I think, and that's really just, I think goes through everything in life from fixing your flat tire to the garage doors broken to making sure we win this contract so that we can make payroll next month. I think that is such a powerful message to end on actually. Self-reliance and independence, that's what you need. And to that point, I just want to say, Jim, thank you very much for your time. It's absolutely been amazing chatting to you. If people want to find out a little more about your story, if they want to see a little more about what you up to, where's the best place for them to actually reach out? So probably the easiest way, just shoot me an email. It's jim at provenair.com. Check out our website, right? Especially if you're in the aviation industry and you have this problem, but you know, or find me on LinkedIn as well. You can kind of see there. And I'm always open to chat with folks. I get a lot of emails, so I might not always get back to folks, but like I said, this is one of my New Year's resolutions is giving back more, so. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Sathish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by BloomX. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bloomx.io to join us on Discord.